basically, as they see it, time is on China's side. One of the biggest applause lines was when Xi Jinping said that the wheels of history are rolling on toward China's reunification and the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The Chinese Communist Party Congress is underway in Beijing at time of recording. This is always a key moment on the Chinese political calendar. Every five years, party delegates select party leadership. This includes the selection of the topmost ranks of the Chinese Communist Party, including its general secretary. And being a one-party state, the head of the Chinese Communist Party is also the president of China. Over the last several decades, general secretaries of the Chinese Communist Party served at most two consecutive five-year terms. But Xi Jinping is bucking this trend. He is widely expected to be installed for a third term demonstrating that he is the most powerful individual leader in China since the time of Chairman Mao. So what does a more ensconced and more powerful Xi Jinping mean for China and its relationship with the rest of the world? I put this question and more to Jessica Chen Weiss, a professor of China and Asia Pacific Studies at Cornell University. We kick off discussing the significance of this party congress before diving deep into the implications of Xi Jinping's consolidation of political power. We also spend a good deal of time discussing how the United States and China might best manage their relationship going forward, which happened to be the topic of a New York Times op-ed published by Jessica Chen Weiss just after we spoke. Now, here is my conversation with Jessica Chen Weiss, professor of China and Asia Pacific Studies at Cornell University. Can I have you explain what is the Chinese Communist Party Congress? Generally speaking, why is it a significant moment on the political calendar? And what makes this particular party conference so unique? So this is a the Chinese Communist Party's highest political event every five years. And this one's particularly important because we expect that Xi Jinping will secure a third term, you know, following changes to the constitution that had previously been enacted. But this will essentially elevate him beyond the kind of stature that previous party leaders have held in recent memory. So some are calling Xi, you know, emperor for life. We don't know if that's actually going to be true literally, but nonetheless, this is a precedent-breaking Congress. What has the lead-up to this Congress looked like inside of China? Like, how anticipated is it, and what has been, like, the narrative going into it? It's been an extremely important and 
highly anticipated event. And one way, you know, somebody described it is that the Chinese Communist Party has been in sort of campaign season and the whole country is essentially, you know, on its best behavior with the approaching of the Congress. And in particular, that's been manifest in the continuation of China's zero COVID policy and the desire to have everything buttoned down so that everything looks successful in the lead up to the Congress. So what have we seen thus far from the Congress? Xi Jinping gave a major speech a few days prior to recording this. What were your key takeaways from that speech? Well, we didn't really hear anything that we have never heard Xi Jinping say before. So there was a lot of continuity signaled in his report to the party congress. That said, it, it I think codified some of the changes that we have been seeing and how the Chinese Communist Party views the world as one that is going through major changes and is importantly as fraught with risks as well as opportunities for China's continued development. There are a couple of different things that people have been paying attention to. There is a lot of expectation that there might be new language, for example, on Taiwan policy. There, there was a sort of anticlimactic. In fact, I think some of the changes were rolled out ahead of the Congress in terms of the new white paper on Taiwan that was released in the aftermath of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit in August. And in fact, I think there was important continuity in Xi Jinping's remarks on Taiwan to continue to emphasize China's commitment to pursuing, quote unquote, peaceful reunification with the utmost sincerity, I think he said. And then also to continue to affirm that, you know, basically as they see it, time is on China's side. One of the biggest applause lines was when Xi Jinping said that the wheels of history are rolling on toward China's reunification and the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, in his words. Well, what kind of time frame are are we looking at? Time is on China's side. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) It's a great question. Well, and it's very controversial. I think there's been a lot of breathless speculation about timelines and timetables that I I don't really think are, are warranted. I think when Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders talk about the you know east is rising and the west is climbing they're talking about a broad epochal shift one that might take decades to realize so this is about i think really an effort by xi jinping to proclaim that basically things are going well and nobody needs to get too impatient and that actually the sort of over the long view china expects to be successful in its various goals and so that even as there are a lot of risks and challenges in the near term that over the long haul, he's telling his you know, domestic audience that, look, stick with the Chinese Communist Party. Chinese Communist Party is not going to change its color, change its stripes. This is the horse you want to bet on, I think, is essentially his argument. On Taiwan specifically, does that imply that there is perhaps no urgency towards the, you know, quote, peaceful reunification of Taiwan that Xi Jinping doesn't see it in like his near-term plans to peacefully reunify Taiwan, but rather it's something that will happen inevitably as the East rises, as you say, as China gains in power and stature. That is a narrative that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to spin. And to the extent that it continues that narrative, it is better. And it suggests, you know, a degree of patience that, you know, allowed the status quo to remain. I will say that, you know, Xi Jinping has linked 
reunification to the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which is associated with 2049. So that's a long ways off, but it is a date. Of course, what exactly reunification might mean could mean many different things. But regardless, it's pretty far off. And then that too isn't a firm timetable. And so there was a recent CSIS poll of experts on this that I thought was really useful in confirming that most experts don't see that Xi Jinping has set a timetable, certainly not in the near term, for achieving this goal. What else stood out for you from this speech beyond the Taiwan issue? I would say that the challenges and risks that Xi Jinping sees the country facing are, you know, really came out in this report to the Congress. And basically, he was continuing to exhort his audience and the Chinese people to prepare for kind of worst case scenarios, even as he expects and hopes for continued peace and development. So I think it was a full-throated recognition of the challenges that China faces domestically as well as internationally, but also an effort to rally people to prepare for these stormy seas ahead. What were some of the stormy seas that he's suggesting might be ahead? On the domestic front, there is continued inequality. You have acute environmental challenges. And here's where those domestic international challenges linked. He said that you know, China's capacity for scientific and technological innovation is not yet strong enough. And of course, this is taking place against the backdrop of new U.S. export controls to prevent China from acquiring the most advanced semiconductors and semiconductor producing equipment. So, you know, the challenges are both ones that China faces in its own development, but also the severe international headwinds that China faces, particularly, although it wasn't explicitly referenced in its relationship with the United States. So in light of these headwinds, is there any indication one way or another how China will pursue the Belt and Road Initiative in the coming years? Was this given mention during Xi's report to the party Congress? And if so, what did he have to say about Belt and Road? It's important to notice the context here, which is that the Belt and Road has, you know, gone through many different iterations and permutations. And, you know, as China's the domestic drivers of this kind of exporting surplus capacity, this financing, as that has dwindled, they have really pulled back on this kind of outbound investment in infrastructure and lending. And so, you know, while there was still mention, of course, celebration of the Belt and Road Initiative is something that, you know, China has contributed to the world. That's to be expected. But we didn't see anything new coming out, you know, on this front. So I I do want to talk about Xi and Xi's foreign policy going forward. Before we get there, though, I would be interested in having you explain if there's any major foreign policy significance to the composition of the Politburo Standing Committee. I I take it that in the coming days, the composition of the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the upper echelon of the Chinese Communist Party, will be decided. Are there any particular names or who might be included or excluded that will suggest to you one way or another anything about Chinese foreign policy going forward? You know, we'll have to see who ends up being named. I think the general expectation is that what we were looking for is, you know, to what extent are these folks really dependent on Xi for their elevation onto the pinnacle of power and and to the extent that they are, that one implication for Chinese foreign policy is that 
there would be a even less potential room for disagreement within the Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee. So that, you know, many predict as a result that he may emerge from the party Congress a little bit more emboldened and less constrained. But we'll have to see whether or not that bears out. But it is like a strong possibility that the entire upper echelon of the Chinese Communist Party, the Politburo Standing Committee, will more or less be all like yes men who owe their careers, their position there directly to Xi and therefore are unlikely to, as you say, issue much critical feedback. Yes, I mean, that has been a concern for quite some time now, and it may only become more pronounced if that is how the Congress works out. So if one of the outcomes of this party Congress is that you know she is more firmly ensconced in power with fewer checks to that power, what trends might we see in Chinese foreign policy in the coming years? So there are different ways in looking at the impacts of domestic politics. We've just laid out one of them, which is that the information that he gets or the kind of deliberation is reduced. But there's also, I think, a lot of evidence that domestic challenges, of which she and his colleagues seem very well aware, you know, maybe cause for actually more, you know, restraint or moderation in Chinese foreign policy. Historically, There's little evidence that Chinese leaders have sought military conflict to divert attention from domestic challenges. I'm referring to research by Taylor Fravel and Andrew Chubb, which suggests that actually Chinese foreign policy tends to be more cautious when its leaders are preoccupied with dealing with domestic challenges. What other trends might we see in the coming years with a perhaps more authoritarian Xi, a Xi with fewer checks on his power in terms of the kinds of Chinese foreign policy decisions we can see being made in, in the coming years? You know, I think that, you know, even though she may become, you know, more ensconced in power, he still can't get everything that he wants. I mean, there are, there are really these fundamental tensions between different objectives that he himself has set out, including continued modernization and economic development versus the kind of maintenance, the insistence on, uh, you know, zero COVID and concern about the public health and domestic stability consequences of moving away from that kind of a stance on COVID. So I think that we're going to have to see, you know, where does Xi Jinping come out on that in terms of how he balances across these different contending incentives and objectives. To what extent does the fact that Xi may very well be president for life does that provide the United States with a potential opportunity or inflection point to calibrate its approach to China? You know, the Chinese-U.S. relationship will be you know, the dominant, the most important relationship in the world, will have ramifications on every aspect of, of international relations. The fact that she is now probably going to be in power for a very, very long time, if not the rest of his life, Does that provide an opportunity now for the Biden administration today and perhaps other presidents going forward to reset or calibrate their relationship with Xi accordingly? I do think that after the party Congress, there is an important opportunity to begin to discuss with China ways in which the United States and China can begin to take steps back from the brink. Because I think that the current trajectory is one that will bring heightened risk of a crisis, not conflict, 
and will continue to put strain on, if not undermine, the very kind of foundations of an inclusive and encompassing international order. As you know, both sides increasingly invest in smaller coalitions of the like-minded or the willing, and so some may say, "Well, you know, she's you know so confident. You know, there's no partner there." But I'd say that the alternative, first of all, could be catastrophic, and second of all, I think the Chinese Communist Party under she realizes that China's still weaker, and that it depends on you know just to a great degree on international technology and capital to continue to develop and modernize. And so I actually think that this is an important period, you know, a dangerous period where both the United States and China could benefit from, you know, a more stable relationship. I'm not saying that this is going to lead to some kind of deep-seated friendship or kumbaya, but I still think that these kinds of mutually coordinated, if technically unilateral steps could give both countries the kind of breathing room to deal with really acute domestic challenges. So, for example, what might those steps look like on Taiwan? So I think that the military operations, you know, in the Taiwan Strait and around the island are a good place to start. Following Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August, Beijing ramped up its maneuvers, including across the median line, which had served as sort of an unofficial guardrail to reduce the risk of conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Those maneuvers continued to this day. And, you know, for its part, the United States is also looking for ways to push back on. And, you know, there's sort of the one-way action-reaction spiral that's sort of heading, I think, toward some kind of showdown. And with elections on the island looming in 2024, and of course in the United States as well, I think it would be important for the two sides to begin to think about ways that are not necessarily advancing the material capacity of Taiwan to resist a Chinese attack, but are continuing to keep the temperature pretty elevated and precipitating kind of a tit-for-tat response. And, you know, in a classic kind of security dilemma, these actions that each side takes to ostensibly build security actually end up precipitating an equal and opposite reaction that ends up leaving neither side better off. And so, you know, in the current atmosphere of, you know, really deep distrust, I'm not suggesting unilateral concessions. I don't think they would be politically palatable for either side. And so that's why I think it's important to think about what are the sort of reciprocal steps that could be taken, bounds on behavior that could begin to lower the temperature, at least stabilize the current escalatory spiral we find ourselves in. So what are some of those reciprocal steps? The Chinese, you said, might reduce the kinds of military provocations and patrols in the Taiwan Strait. What might Taiwan and the United States do to reciprocate? So there's a whole you know, variety of actions that we take ostensibly to you know, show support for the island or deter Beijing. But I don't know that it really makes a difference whether the United States military transits the Taiwan Strait, you know, four, eight, 12, or, you know, 24 times a year. And so the frequency of these kinds of, you know, symbolic assertions are something that I think could be potentially modified without any really adverse impact on the fundamental situation. Similarly, you know, these kind of the frequency of sensitive reconnaissance operations on the U.S. side. And of course, I mean, this is all with an eye toward reducing the kind of Chinese activity in and around Taiwan that really put a lot of burden on the island's defenses and monitoring 
and, you know, ultimately will make it harder to resist whatever move the Chinese side might make in the event of some kind of real crisis. Similarly, you know, on the Taiwan side, you know, most of what I think could be limited would be, you know, in the political realm. And and really, you know, the kind of the erosion of deterrence is this triangular relationship between Washington, Beijing, and Taipei, you know, has really rested on assurances by all sides that if Beijing refrained from military coercion or attack, that Taiwan would also not use that to push the envelope on pursuing formal independence or permanent separation. And so the kinds of assurances, you know, are likely to take the form more of, you know, what is the kind of political signaling and statements that politicians on the island make, you know, regarding Taiwan's independence and sovereignty, you know, those kinds of things rather than the military component. In the coming, say, months or years following Xi's coronation or whatever you <laughs> might call it as you know, leader for life, are there any sort of near-term steps that you'll be looking towards that he might take that will suggest to you broadly the trajectory of Chinese foreign policy going forward? You know, I think probably the biggest thing that I'd be looking at is, again, this question of zero COVID. You know, to what extent is he able to, are willing to find some kind of pragmatic path forward? Because that would really, I think, affect the sense that China's economy will be continuing to grow versus one where we're likely to see a prolonged period of slow economic growth and continued difficulty, really, I think, engaging internationally in terms of the back and forth of people and students and business. So that would be, I think, a pretty important indicator. It's not directly a sign of what direction she might take Chinese foreign policy, but it's sort of, I think, the basis for drawing other conclusions about where is he likely to go? Is he going to return to the path of pragmatism or or is it going to be this kind of stability first approach? At this point, is the zero COVID policy like ideological? In some ways, I think it, I hesitate to use the word ideological because it means so many different things to different people. I do think that he is really invested in zero COVID as the kind of secret sauce that has allowed in his telling and in the Chinese Communist Party's telling allowed China to do so well or did so well for so long during the pandemic. You know, you'll recall that at the outset of the pandemic, the CCP was touting China's COVID response as, you know, superior to that of the West and many other countries. And so for him to move away from it now is tricky if it bears risks that the health system might be overwhelmed and you might have, you know, millions of deaths. So this is, you know, very tricky, I think, but in many ways, it's not clear what that path is out. And it's in part because of the kind of expectations that have been baked in by, you know, prior decisions and propaganda stances. But if he relents from that zero COVID policy, it will be a demonstration that indeed she is able to be pragmatic in the face of a challenge like that. And that could suggest more broadly that he is perhaps less ideologically committed and is more able to be a pragmatic kind of politician? 
I think so. And I think it would also indicate that he's willing to take on certain kinds of, you know, risks, not risks of, you know, international confrontation, but risks domestically to, you know, once again, return to a kind of more open approach to managing, you know, dynamic changes rather than kind of rigidly insisting on the sanctity of what's come before. Jessica, this was very helpful. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.